Our sermon text today is Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 23. You'll recall where we left off last week in chapter 6. Wherever he came in villages, cities, or countrysides, they laid the sick in the marketplace and implored him that they might touch even the hem of his garment and be healed. Just as all those people were gathering around him even at that point to be healed through faith, through trusting in him. So now a, a, another crowd is gathering around Jesus. But this crowd is not coming in faith. They are rather coming with motives that are far more sinister, far more conniving. Remember all the way back in Mark 3, if you will, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying he is possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons. He casts out the demons. This is an unequivocally adversarial gathering. We must bear that in mind as we read Mark 7, verses 1 through 23. If you're able now, would you please rise out of respect for God's word as I read our sermon text. This is the inspired word of God. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of the disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching the doctrines, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his mother or his father. Thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since It enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they 
defile a person. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word, our only infallible rule for faith and practice. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Would you pray with me once more? Lord God, help us to know this truth that you have given us in your word. Help us to know it not just in our heads, but in our hearts, and help us to live out a faithfulness to you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm sure you, like me, when you were a little child, were taught by your mother and or father that you were to wash your hands before dinner, right? It's a very simple thing, you know, you're supposed to not just rinse them, but use soap even, right? Because, because we know that, that washing hands gets rid of germs. During COVID, we were reminded of that because there were, there were uh, hand sanitizer bottles everywhere we went, right? And, and we were kind of reminded of this fact that, that germs are, are killed by sanitizer, by soap, by, by washing one's hands. But when we look at this passage, that's not what is being talked of here because, because we know also that it wasn't until uh, the 17th century with the invention of the microscope that anybody even realized there was such a thing as microorganisms and it wasn't until the 1860s that Louis Pasteur uh, demonstrated the connection between germs and disease. So you might be wondering, well, well, what exactly are they talking about here with the washing of hands before dinner nearly 2,000 years ago. Well, what they were focusing on had nothing to do with hygiene whatsoever. Rather, they were talking about ceremonial purity, right? The ceremonial laws of the Old Testament, right? The Pharisees here uh, saw that the disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is unwashed, right? They didn't go through a ceremonial cleansing of their hands. And we need to know that there were indeed laws that, that required ceremonial washing before eating, but these rules actually only applied to the priests. They were the priests, but, but the scribes and the Pharisees, they had a tendency to take the laws that were given and kind of expand them out to make them broader, to make them more onerous, more burdensome upon the people. Right, they would do what, what is called building a fence around the law. Right? And that fence would become uh, a protection, if you will. Uh, and, and tradition was this fence. It's kind of like if you go into a museum, uh, they, they don't want you doing things like touching the paintings with your hands, right? So if they have a really valuable painting, they might put up a rope around it so you can't even get close. Right? And if you were to, for instance, go to a museum and you just stepped over that rope and just stood on the inside of it, looked at the painting, didn't touch it, but just stood at it, security would still come and get you and take you away, right? Because they put that rope around there. What they're wanting to actually prevent is you touching the painting. But they've put a, a further law around that law, right? Something that's backed you off even further, that's been even more careful, even more protective than what they really want to accomplish, right? And that's what the tradition of the Pharisees and the scribes did. They would create these laws that were fences that, that pushed people back even further from what was being prohibited by God's law. They did this with things like the Sabbath where they'd have all kinds of silly rules. I read one, they're talking about how on the Sabbath you weren't allowed to carry a handkerchief from one place to another. But you could 
wear a handkerchief, right? So you could, if you wanted to carry the handkerchief from here to there, you had to grab it, you tie it around your neck, and then you could walk over here and untie it, now you had it over there. But you couldn't pick it up and carry it, right? Because they had these rules, these silly rules, these ridiculous rules that they had about what you could and couldn't do that, that lost the whole purpose of what the law was pointing at. But these fences they built were involved, and they involved, involved these rules with cleanliness as well. And so you see this parenthetical statement in verses 3 and 4, which is an explanation to the Gentile readers of Mark's gospel, what's going on here, how the Pharisees and all the Jews, the, they, they didn't eat unless they washed their hands properly, unless they did it as they were supposed to. They, they washed their hands ceremonially and did all these other things with pots and with with the dining couches, and they had all these extra rules. And by following these rules, they thought that this would make them uh, extra holy, as it were, right? But what we need to remember is that the way to true holiness comes from God and not from man. It might seem noble at first thought, right, to set up these extra rules around the law that, that, that would be extra spiritual, right? That we say we're going to be more spiritual than God requires. We're going to be more spiritual than God dictates by following these extra rules. But it leads us to a question, right? Which of these things is worse? Is it worse to allow something that God forbids or is it worse to forbid something God allows? I think if you're like me, your first instinct would be to say, well, it's definitely worse to allow something God forbids, right? Because he's told us, don't do that. And, and then to say that we can do it is to contradict God. But don't you see, it's just as bad to do the other. If God says it's okay to do this, and I say it's not, then I've put myself in the place of God. I've usurped his authority as the divine lawgiver. So I've, I've taken the place of God, and that's exactly what the Pharisees and the scribes were guilty of doing here. They had come to value the traditions of men above the law of God. And regardless of whether the intention behind that was good, the reality is they have displaced God with tradition. Now, don't get me wrong, tradition can be a good thing. We have plenty of traditions here, right? I mean, we, say, we pray the Lord's Prayer every week, right? And that's kind of a tradition. At the end of our service, we sing, God be with you till we meet again. That's a tradition. And there's nothing wrong with those. Those are fine traditions. We're a very traditional church, especially in this day. We're far more traditional than most churches. And that's a good thing. But... If we were ever to discover that one of our traditions, no matter how fondly held, no matter how long practiced, no matter how deeply loved, if we found one of our traditions were counter to the word of God, were against what God says, then we would have to abandon that immediately. We'd have to say, you know what, we've, we've done this forever, we enjoy it, but God's word says, no, that's right, because God's word is above even our traditions. But see, that's what the Pharisees and scribes were, were getting wrong. They flipped them. They valued tradition as much, if not more, than the word of God. And so they asked Jesus, why, why don't your disciples walk according to the tradition? 
but they eat with defiled hands. They don't go through a ceremonial purifying of their hands when they eat. And Jesus, in response, does not mince words. You know, it's really interesting to note that Jesus, when he is, when he is talking his most direct, his most confrontational, when he is speaking in the sharpest of tones, it is almost always while he is speaking to the religious leaders, right? Those who, those who claim to have the spiritual high ground. When, when he is speaking to those who don't even claim to be his followers, he tends to be tender and gentle and lowly. He tends to be, be patient and kind. He's, he's not as confrontational there. But with those who claim to know God and his will, he has very little patience when they are leading people astray. And so he quotes, as Sam said earlier, the prophecy from Isaiah that we read together. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. It's part of an oracle that is condemning Jerusalem, condemning the people of God, and so Jesus here is condemning the Pharisees and the scribes who would set up their tradition above the word of God. It is the height of hypocrisy in his mind. And for us, when we talk about hypocrisy, we usually think of, of saying one thing and doing another. And, and indeed, that is hypo hypocrisy. But, but what Jesus is talking about here is something slightly different than that, right? Because the, the Pharisees said you need to keep these laws and they actually did keep these laws, right? Their, their actions were in line with their words. But there was a, a discontinuity that exists. They, they, the laws that they were following weren't the laws that God required. And, and their hearts didn't match what was perceived as an external piety. That's where the hypocrisy was, right? They had a heart that did not match what they showed. It wasn't between their words and their actions. It was between their actions and their hearts. And so Jesus says in Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Right? He, they've They've neglected these weightier matters, these more important things, those things that, that Micah speaks about in Micah 6, 8. He has told you, oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness or mercy and to walk humbly with your God. That's what the word of God requires. But the Pharisees require traditions. God requires that we be loving, kind, merciful, humble. The Pharisees wanted, wanted to follow the traditions because it's easier. It's easier, even though they seem more burdensome, it's easier because, because all you have to do is check off some things all, along the way. Do some certain actions. <clears throat> you don't need to actually have a heart change. It's more comfortable. It's more measurable. It's more outwardly laudable, right? People can see it. Oh, he's doing those holy things, right? He must be a holy man. 
Right? But God's concerned about our heart. He wants to see a change take place there. Jesus says to them, you leave the commandment of God and hold the tradition of men. And there is the problem. They had come to an uh, epistemological fork in the road. Right? They could either hold on to their traditions or they could hold on to the word of God. They chose to cling to their traditions over God's commandments. And he gives an example here. That's what happens in verses 9 through 13. <clears throat> he gives the example of korban. Now what korban was, was, was uh, people could, uh, if they wanted to dedicate money that would be for the Lord, and it would be set aside, and it couldn't be used uh, for, for instance, in this case, taking care of their parents, right? Because it was money that was dedicated to God. It was set aside. Now, they didn't actually have to give it to the temple. They could sit there and hold on to it and keep it and earn interest off of it or whatever. And they could, they could live their life in such a way. But, but see what, what Jesus is saying here, this whole practice goes counter to what God's will is, right? He says, you are to love your, love your family. You're supposed to honor your parents. You're supposed to take care of them, Right? You shouldn't set aside this money that you're not actually even giving away, but, but just designating it for that, right? It's, it's, it's a loophole in the system. It's a trick to get around the outside, around the end of it. And Jesus is not humored by it, right? It's, it's the kind of thing that has caused God to say through the prophet Amos in uh, Amos 5, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs, the melody of your harps. I will not listen. Right? He, he's saying to them, you do all these religious things. You, you practice all these religious practices. You, you come to worship. You show up every Sunday. You sing the songs. You, you give your offerings. You do all of this, and yet your hearts are far from me. That's what he's saying there. And so he says in verse 24 of Isaiah, Amos 5, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. That is what God is looking for. He is looking for us to be just and to be righteous, not to be vessels of empty ritual, but to, to live lives that are filled and directed by the Spirit. Right? He, he's looking for love and joy peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control for against such things there is no law. Faced with this, we should probably consider what things are there in our lives that we do simply because they're man-made traditions and not just traditions, but traditions that actually run counter to the word of God. If we're going to discover these things, if we're going to realize these things, it is incumbent upon us that two things be true. One is we must be people of the word. We must be people of the word, people who look to God's word for answers. We should be like the Bereans of Acts 17, right? They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so, right? That's what we must do. We must be in the word of God daily examining the scriptures to see if our lives match up with what God prescribes. Secondly, we must be people of prayer. 
We must go to God and ask him for direction, ask him for leadership, ask him to to point us in the way that we should go and to live the lives that we should live. In James 1 verse 5 we read, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. Too often we think that this is a verse that tells us, you know, which car should I buy, God, the red one or the blue one? Right? That's not the kind of wisdom he's talking about here. Wisdom is a category, actually, of, of you know, wisdom versus folly. It's not just, just, not just informational category. It's, it's an ethical category. Right? Which way should I go, Lord? What, what direction should I walk in my life so that I might be in line with what you have revealed in your scriptures? So that I might be walking in holiness. Right? The word and prayer. Our services are full of of the word and prayer. That's intentional. They must be. And our lives must be as well. Because the way to true holiness comes from God and not from man. Point two, the root of unholiness comes from within and not from without. Our culture tells us all the time that the problem is out there and if we want to solve the problem, we just need to look within, look deep within yourself and you will find the answers to all of life's questions our culture tells us. But God's word tells us that this is wrong. Jesus says, hear me all of you and understand there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. This is especially revolutionary in the Jewish context where they had the ceremonial laws built up and and they thought that that's where purity came, but true purity, true piety, it comes from within. In fact, we see that the disciples didn't even get it when Jesus taught it, right? Verse 17, he entered into the house, left the people, the disciples asked him about the parable. It wasn't a parable, it was a straightforward statement. And yet they didn't understand it. And he says, do you not see whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Right? Are you also without understanding? Come on, guys. Why do I have to tell you again and again and again? This is what Jesus is saying to his disciples. And it's interesting, right? We look at Peter, for instance, who even after this still doesn't really get it. Remember what happens in in Acts 10 where where he's given this dream, this vision, uh, and and all these animals are being let down out and and, and the the Lord tells him, take and eat. And Peter's like, God, I can't do that. These are unclean animals here. What had just happened here in in verse 19? Thus he declared all foods clean, right? This was so ingrained in their way of thinking. But Jesus saw that the the purity laws were were not about just plain ritual that was going to accomplish something. Rather, they were to be a reminder of of how we as the people of God are set apart by God and are, are different, are other, are to live holy lives before him. And so, true holiness is going to come from our hearts and it can only come from our hearts not from without and true unholiness unfortunately comes from our hearts as well the sinful desires that emanate from our hearts so we see in this passage this this uh difference between inner motives 
and ceremonial purity, right? The inner motives are what are most important to God. Our heart is what really matters. But, but therein lies the problem, right? Because Jeremiah tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And what does Paul tell us in Romans 3? But, but none is righteous, no, not one. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongue to deceive. The venom of asps is on their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Drop down to verse 23 of Romans 3. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And when he says all, brothers and sisters, that includes you and me. We fall short. Our hearts are evil. They need to be remade. We need to be reminded of our sins. And so, so we need to see that, that Christ comes to us and, and proclaims these sins. We need to make sure that we're seeing our sins in this, right? It's easy for us to look at this list that's going to follow in verse 21 and say, yeah, I see that in the world. I see where those people do that. I see where others are doing those things. I see sin all around me. Boy, this world is so sinful. But what's important for us to do is to look within our own hearts and to see where these things reside in us, to see how we are guilty right? of evil thoughts, of sexual immorality, of theft, of murder, of adultery. Remember, you say, well, I've never committed murder. I've never committed adultery. What does Jesus tell us, right? If you've hated your brother in your heart, you've already murdered him. If you've lusted after someone else, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Of coveting, longing for what others have. The whole advertising industry is built upon the universality of this, right? Wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come within. They defile a person. And they do that for you and for me. Jesus paints a dark picture of our hearts here. It's the kind of thing that would cause Paul in Romans 7 to say, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And the answer to that question, of course, is Jesus. Only Jesus can deliver us from this body of death. Only Jesus can take our heart and make it right. Only Jesus can make us holy. Only Jesus can deliver us from our sin. Only Jesus can make us right before God. Right? Because when he died on the cross for our sins, he, he did that great exchange where he gave us his righteousness and took our sin upon himself. And he made us new creatures and so he says in John 3, Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And God promises to us through the prophet Ezekiel, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. 
right? Those idols of evil thoughts, those idols of sexual immorality, those idols of theft, murder, adultery, and coveting, those idols of wickedness and deceit and sensuality, of envy and slander and pride and foolishness. God says that I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in the statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So let us now draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. There is a wonderful, wondrous mystery to this, is there not? What a wondrous mystery. The God who is spirit can take on human flesh. What a wondrous mystery that the eternal and omnipresent God might step into time and space. What a wondrous mystery that the light of the world might step into the darkness. What a wondrous mystery that the true and better Adam might succeed where the first Adam so miserably failed. What a wondrous mystery that the good shepherd might himself become the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What a wondrous mystery that we whose hearts are deceitful above all things might be clothed with his perfect righteousness. What a wondrous mystery that the Lord of life might be put to death that death itself might die. What a wondrous mystery that we who have hearts of stone might have those hearts replaced with hearts of flesh. What a wondrous mystery that we might proclaim his death and sing his praises and participate in him at this table, this table before you where Jesus invites us, Jesus invites us to this table that we might participate in him, that we might partake of him. But just like it's not our outer actions that determine our righteousness or our holiness, so it is that it's not merely by eating of the bread and drinking of the cup that we are made right with God, but rather he tells us that we must partake in faith, right? Faith must precede partaking of the Lord. We can only partake of the Lord. We can only eat his flesh and drink his blood if we first believe in him, trust in him, depend upon him. And so we at Calvary, before we come to the Lord's table, we proclaim our faith. We proclaim our faith. And you'll find printed in the bulletin today, the Nicene Creed, this ancient statement that Christians have for centuries upon centuries proclaimed together. Let us now read this statement and make it our own. My brothers and sisters in Christ, what do you believe? I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, 
very God, very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of the Father, and he shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of Look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. This table is not Calvary's table. It's not a Presbyterian table. It is the Lord's table. And so if what we've just proclaimed represents your faith, then he invites you to it. He invites you to partake. If, if what we've just read doesn't represent your faith, then I would urge you to Refrain from partaking, not because you are not worthy in some way. If, if it was our worthiness that purchased a ticket for us to the table that none of us could come. But rather, I urge you to refrain because what we are doing by partaking of this is a visual proclamation that we do indeed believe those things. For the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread, and drink this cup. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Elders, would you come forward as I pray for us? Would you pray? Our Lord, we thank you that you indeed have blessed us so mightily, that you have given us this visible sign that points us to Christ, and it is more than just an empty symbol, but actually, as we partake in faith, it provides us with Christ himself as a means of grace. Be with us now and bless us. Make us more like him to the glory of your holy name. Amen.
what a wondrous mystery it is that Jesus says to all who would trust in him, take, eat, this is my body.
After the disciples partook of that first Lord's Supper, they sang a hymn, we're told, let us do the same. You'll find the hymn, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery, printed in your bulletin. Let's rise if we are able and sing that song to Christ Jesus. 